Two and a Half Admins, episode 52. I'm Joe. I'm Jim. And I'm Alan. And here we are again. And before we get started, we've got a couple of plugs. Uh, the first one is the second part of your blog post, Jim, that you did confusingly for Alan's company. Yeah, um, but just the second half of achieving your recovery point objective and recovery time objectives using ZFS is up on our website now. Snapshots and incremental replication and uh, getting things running again quickly. Oh, my. And Jim, you were also on Linux Unplugged episode 418 discussing WireGuard NT. Yeah, it was great catching up with Chris and Wes again. Uh, by all means, go and uh, check out Linux Unplugged 418. Let's do some news then. And the first one is something that Torrent Freak uncovered, and that is that Netflix, in its effort to block VPNs, seems to be accidentally blocking residential IPs. Well, accidentally is kind of up for debate. They know perfectly well that they're blocking residential IP space. The uh, The accident is just... If you happen to occupy one of the subnets they blocked because somebody inside that subnet was selling access to their IP address via proxy, you know, to the uh, VPN providers, well, then you get caught in the crossfire. This is part of an arms race, though, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely. They're not the only one. I mean, all the streaming services have been trying to enforce their geofencing for years, and the VPN providers have been trying just as hard to get around it. Because a lot of the reason that, you know, millions of people have these subscriptions to these relatively inexpensive VPN providers is specifically to get around geoblocking. So, you know, a, a Brit in America can watch the BBC for free using a UK endpoint and uh, the rest of the world gets access to stuff in the US that's difficult to come by legally elsewhere. Netflix is not that interested in having the VPN arms race, but when the media companies they buy the the show the rights from are like you have to do this so we're not selling you the show then they have to they really wish the vpn providers didn't make big flashy youtube commercials telling people about how to get around the geofence using the vpn <laughs> it's like if you could do it but like not talk about it so much then you know <laughs> the movie companies wouldn't be up our ass about it yeah i got to believe that's accurate uh, it's yeah it's worth noting that netflix has been Paring down their geofencing efforts. You know, it used to be that if you were on an IP address that was flagged as VPN or proxy, Netflix would just be like, you know, no, get lost. Now what happens is you just don't get access to the geofenced content, but things that aren't geofenced will still work fine. So, for example, all of Netflix's originally authored content, it's perfectly available over the VPN. It's the stuff that they're distributing for somebody else who has different arrangements in different parts of the world. And, you know, like like Alan says, I imagine they've got to be getting hounded by those providers to do more to enforce the geographical restrictions because it's, it's just not in their interest to mess with it otherwise. It's not like it costs Netflix any extra money if you're going over a VPN before you get to them, after all. Right. But, you know, if they told the, the company that sold them the show that you know, yes, we'll make sure that only people from these countries can watch it because that's what the company with the rights has the rights to and they don't have the rights to something because, you know, they already sold it to somebody else for the other regions, then it kind of gets to be this nasty cycle. I mean, the only way out of the cycle really is to stop selling exclusive redistribution licenses. It's a terrible model. It sucks in the hardware world when, like, you live in this state so you can only buy a national vendor's product from like the one crappy little company 50 miles from you and you're not allowed to order it online from like a big shop in California, that sucks for hardware. It sucks just as much for watching movies. The exclusive model just really ultimately has got to go. Yeah, and like it's really been a problem for Netflix, especially in countries like Canada, because the US studios would like 
sell their batch of movies to a different rights holding company in Canada every year for everything in the 80s and the 90s and so on. And so just trying to get the rights to some of that stuff is just dealing with a whole bunch of these smaller companies that hold the rights. And when Netflix comes knocking, they're all like, ooh, this is our big payday. And Netflix is like, not really. You've got movies from the 80s. We want them, but we're not going to pay that much for them. <laughs> and it just, you know, they were like, if we could just have gotten the movies from Universal or whatever and put them all up, then this would have been a lot easier. But instead, you get this stuff and like, it got to the point where in the Netflix UI now, there has movies that's like, it's only available until, you know, the end of August. And then this movie won't be on Netflix anymore. It's like... You're ruining the whole point of being able to do cord cutting and so on. I just want to watch the stuff. You know, I'm willing to pay to watch the stuff. I'm, I wouldn't pirate it if I could just make it work without pirating it. Another example of that, and, uh, you know, arguably one of the more extreme ones, it's effectively impossible to find unaltered Beavis and Butthead episodes from the 90s. Because for those of you who don't remember, that was a cartoon that aired on MTV with the titular, you know, teenage morons doing moron things. But about half of the show was the two of them watching music videos. And it's just impossible to get all the rights to all the music videos. So basically, everybody who's repackaging Beavis and Butthead stuff, you know, even when it's like legit and they're charging significant amounts of money for it, it's just the parts of the cartoon without the video because nobody can acquire all the rights. It's difficult even to get enough of the rights for a single episode where they watch four or five different videos because it's usually going to mean four or five different, you know, music providers. And it's just, it's impossible. And like half of them are like defunct or nobody actually knows for sure who owns the rights to some of this older content. And it's just, it's a ridiculous landscape. So where are these VPN providers buying the residential IP addresses from then? I haven't seen any real smoking guns yet, but uh, the widest speculation I see is that, uh, you know, they're reaching out to individuals with residential IP addresses and offering to pay them if they'll run a proxy. Whatever they're doing is way on the down low, because whether they're paying individual residential users to run a proxy or whether they're somehow managing to get ISPs to assign them IP addresses that are in NetBlock's market residential, not business – Either way, this is some shady backroom stuff, so... Yeah, like, uh, because my IP addresses at my house come from, like, a Tier 2 backbone directly that also happens to sell, like, IPv6 tunnels and so on, it means that Cloudflare automatically assumes I'm somebody coming through some kind of proxy or something, and it leads to a pain every once in a while. But luckily so far, Netflix has not blocked the entire provider, but only their tunneling service. But I've always been a bit afraid that because my address block is adjacent and from the same provider that, that does all this tunneling stuff, that, you know, I'm going to be next. I'm really surprised they haven't blocked it because, like, uh, Linode is blocked. I can tell you that. Like, if, if mm -hmm. I, you know, I run my own uh, WireGuard endpoint in Linode that I use when I'm traveling. And if I forget to turn off WireGuard, you know, before firing up Netflix, nah, it's, it's not going to work. Well, that was the one that was confusing me couple months ago when I was trying to watch a live stream of commentary for the NHL playoffs and it wasn't showing up on YouTube on my TV, but it was showing up on my phone, which was, uh, wasn't connected to the Wi-Fi at the time. And then I realized, oh, right. It's geolocating my TV in the States. So it thinks I'm not allowed to watch this. So I had to actually set up a WireGuard tunnel to a server I have in Montreal, uh, to make my machine appear to be in Canada so I could watch the stream of the hockey. <laughs> 
because uh, I just happened to have an IP block that geolocates to the US and I didn't go and correct it because it turns out that's been helpful. It just seems so antiquated to me that we can sit here in three different countries on Jitsi as if we're in the same room and yet we've still got all this bullshit with all the rights and having to block IPs because they might possibly be a VPN. That's the one I haven't figured out. It's like, I don't want to get back to the, the cable thing where you're paying separate money for every channel. And that's kind of the problem we're having now is that when Netflix started, it was great. It's like, I pay them once, it's a one monthly fee and I can watch all the movies. But now there's, you know, 20 of these services. You're seeming more and more of it, you know, CBS is going to have their own and NBC has their own and everybody has their own. I'm like, at some point, the BBC is going to clue in and like sell their content online directly to Americans instead of licensing it out. So everybody that produces content will just do it themselves. Isn't that a thing already with BBC America? Right. They have BBC America, but that's for like cable and so on. But I mean, like online, they might actually make sense to just sell it to me directly and get rid of the middleman and retain the rights to everything themselves so that, you know, 10 years down the road, they're not like, oh, we can't do this because we sold the rights to, you know, somebody in America 10 years ago. I think like Amazon Prime has some weird thing where you, as part of paying for it, you can also subscribe to some other things. Yeah, Amazon Prime does that. Uh, Roku also does that. You can subscribe to various streaming services directly through Roku, although it doesn't always work. I've got like four or five streaming channels that I subscribe to that way, but uh, I did a subscription to ESPN to get access to some old UFC stuff. I you know just kind of got a wild hair one night, and I was like, ah, you know, I'll, I'll turn this off before too long. But this is the easiest way to get to, you know, the original, like, you know, four or five UFC tournaments. And I really wanted to watch those, kind of take a trip down memory lane. But I ended up needing to factory reset my Roku, which should not be a problem. But ESPN was the one channel that when I went back at, at trying to log in, it was just like, no. And, uh, you know, it said, you need to you, you need to go log into your account to Roku to manage this. And, you know, there's... There's nothing to manage on the Roku side. They're just like your subscription is there and it's paid in full. You know, there's there's nothing to do other than cancel it. So I cancel it. So ESPN is no longer getting my $6 a month. Yeah, Roku is actually was, was started by some people at Netflix and they wanted the kind of the, the box you could connect to your TV to get Netflix, but they wanted to have other stuff and they knew that they were only really going to be able to track third parties if it wasn't under the Netflix banner. And so they spun it off as its own thing. And yeah, like even Scale Engine makes a bunch of its money running the Roku channels for a bunch of different streaming things like uh, like dirt track car racing and wrestling and, and a bunch of other things of that nature. I didn't know about the Netflix connection, but that certainly does explain why every other streaming app on Roku sucks compared to the Netflix one. Okay, this episode is sponsored by Linode. Go to linode.com slash 25A and see why Linode has been voted the top infrastructure as a service provider by both G2 and TrustRadius. From their award-winning support offered 24-7, 365 to every level of user, to ease of use and setup, it's clear why developers have been trusting Linode for projects both big and small since 2003. Deploy your entire application stack with Linode's one-click app marketplace or build it all from scratch and manage everything yourself with supported centralized tools like Terraform. Linode offers great price-to-performance value for all compute instances, including GPUs, as well as block storage, Kubernetes, and their upcoming bare metal release. Linode makes cloud computing fast, simple, and affordable, allowing you to focus on your projects, not your infrastructure. So go to linode.com slash 25A Create a free account with your Google or GitHub account or your email address and you'll get $100 in credit. That's linode.com 
slash 25A. So Intel have finally announced the brand name for their discrete graphics cards, and it is Intel Arc, with a C, not a K, not to be confused with the site that tells you all the information about the CPUs. No, this is a different Intel Arc. Well, the best part is, I am pretty sure before much longer, we'll get to look up the Intel Arc on Intel's Arc. Yeah. <laughs> it's not just CPUs. Like, you can look up things about, like, their SSDs and, and Optane stuff. Like, it's their entire oh, yeah, product and catalog. cards and stuff. Yeah. yeah. And so, yeah. yes, the Arc will contain the Arc graphics card, and that will be a great conversation to have. Reminds me of the reasoning behind why that old news website was called Slashdot. Because if you read out the URL with the HTTP colon slash slash and everything in it, then somebody would have absolutely no idea how to get to this bloody website. <laughs> I remember there was a metrics tool called Graphite uh, that did graphing and stuff. But for like the first year after it started getting popular, if you tried to Google for it, all you would find was information about golf clubs because golf clubs are graphite and that is a heavily SEO'd term. And then they decided to name their software that and, and nobody could find it on the internet because it would just be mixed in with all the stuff about golf clubs. Well, don't worry. You know, when this thing launches and people start playing with it, you won't be able to Google alchemist without coming up with, you know, full metal alchemist animu. So and then after that is battle mage. And I forget the, the C and the D, but they're, you know, they're all along the same vein. Ultimately, people have been laughing at Intel, you know, talking about they're going to produce graphics for a while because historically Intel's integrated graphics, you know, was was kind of sucky and AMD's integrated graphics kicked the absolute crap out of it. But the tables have been turning for a while. I mean, Intel is taking this very seriously. They're looking at it both from the gaming perspective, you know, and from a machine learning perspective. And uh, it's taking them a while to get there, but they're literally breaking apart a duopoly right now. Without going to the government and, and saying like, you know, oh, we're, we're suing and you have to split them up. They're getting in the hard way. So it takes a while. Iris XE is already a very good integrated GPU. I was actually arguing with one of my colleagues at ours about that today. I tend to rely on uh, 3D Mark Time Spy when I'm evaluating GPUs because every time I try to match that up, you know, or fail to match that up with real world gaming frame rates, it matches up really, really well. And you can run one time spy benchmark and, you know, get a pretty good idea. Whereas if you're doing only individual games, you know, you've, you've got to find these repeatable demos in a million different games. And it never really tells you anything that just looked at the freaking time spy score didn't. So if you look at the time spy score, uh, the Iris XE and as you see in the 11th gen i7 laptop CPUs, you're looking at about an 1800 time spy score versus about a 1400 for the latest Vega in the uh, Ryzen Mobile 5500U. That doesn't put it in an entirely different class. Like you're going to be able to play the same kinds of games reasonably well on either the AMD newest integrated GPU or the Intel, but it is a pretty significant difference. Now, my colleague was kind of choosing to go with some review that he found on YouTube with some guy, you know, playing a bunch of games and saying, oh, well, this looks this or the other. It's like they're close enough to be within the realm that you can argue about it. But I don't think anybody can argue that XE is, if not the fastest integrated GPU in the world right now, it is neck and neck at the absolute least. Surely the Steam Deck is going to kick its ass, though. I don't know why you would really think that. The Steam Deck is going to be limited to 800p. True. 800p resolution covers an awful lot of sins when it comes to not the strongest GPU in the world. Yeah. 
one thing people don't tend to realize is that, you know, your 4K monitor versus even just a 1080p monitor, it's not like twice as big, but it's like you, you could fit four of the other screens in the one. It makes a really big difference. Yeah. The work goes up like squared rather than just doubled. <laughs> the other thing is like all these integrated GPUs, like Intel's been working on this for a long time, but they've, you know, talking to some of the, the people that worked on it, it's like, you know, we had this very, very tight power envelope. We couldn't use that much power. And, you know, we had very limited die space. We had to make it work with what we had. And, you know, some of the people on that team had been begging Intel for years, like, let us make a full-size one. It would be crazy. <laughs> and so I'm definitely looking forward to them being able to do that. I remember the the previous one they had with the Phi Knight's Landing or whatever, which was not really a GPU so much as hundreds of Pentium 3s or Pentium 4s uh, shrunk down and stuck on a card. And they ran an operating system on it and ran a thread on each of the CPUs and, and basically emulated a graphics card. But eh, with the new stuff, uh, I'm definitely looking forward to it. And, you know, especially if it can maybe alleviate some of the GPU shortage. It's been since like October of last year when I unexpectedly upgraded to a Ryzen and haven't been able to get a video card unless I wanted to like stand outside in the weather on early on a Saturday morning to line up to maybe get one at Best Buy or whatever. It's like, why can't I just buy a bloody video card? So Alchemist, the first iteration of Intel Arc, it's still kind of early days to answer that question of how good is this thing going to be, but we're expecting something roughly equivalent to like an NVIDIA GTX 1030. Right. So certainly not blowing the world away, mm. but uh, considerably hotter than, you know, a mobile iGPU is. Yeah. And... One of the biggest things here is, yet again, AMD's timing is horrible and Intel's timing is just dead on the money. So, you know, AMD languishes for years behind Intel on the CPU front. And then just when they have really got a firm grip on Intel's neck, we're in the midst of a, you know, supply chain disaster and they can't actually ship these CP enough of these CPUs to really get into the market as heavily as they otherwise might be able to be with the advantage they got. Now, Intel, on the other hand, is trying to get into this GPU space. And although, you know, their their new, quote, flagship, unquote, discrete GPU is not that impressive, it's only about equivalent to, you know, a GTX 1030. If they can actually supply these things, the market is just absolutely primed for, you know, a few million people to get hold of these things and be like, yeah, this is okay, this works, and, you know, be ready to buy bigger and more expensive ones a few years down the road as they get faster. Well, like right now, the biggest thing you can reliably buy is a 1660 GTX or whatever. So that's really... About on par, yeah. Yeah. And trying to buy those actual five, six-year-old NVIDIA cards, like even when you can get them, several months ago, I paid, I want to say it was like $380 for, I think it actually was a GTX 1030. But I remember looking up the price on that card when it was new, five or six years before I bought it. And uh, it was originally like a $60 card. And I had no choice but to pay over $300 for this piece of crap five or six years later, because otherwise I wasn't getting video out <laughs> on the, the system that I built for somebody who was, he will never launch a single game on that thing. <laughs> That's one of the things I've been arguing with people about as well as, you know, everybody says, uh, oh, well, you know, who cares if Intel has integrated, you know, GPUs and almost every CPU they sell and AMD doesn't. And I'm like, people building a new system do right now, because even if it's not the GPU that you want, like forever, at least it works to get video out of your system. 
I mean, even a system that's already been built and you had like, you know, your perfect GPU, if that thing catches on fire, I hope that wasn't your daily driver because trying to replace it with something else is a nightmare. I have a GTX 960 right now. And yeah, if it dies, I'm down to an old Quadro K1200 or something that's in the scrap bin in the basement. Right now, the most reliable way to get modern mid to high-end graphics cards is to get yourself a job at a well-known tech site so that you can, you know, have those folks send you review samples. Okay, this episode is sponsored by CBT Nuggets, training for IT professionals or anyone looking to build IT skills. Go to cbtnuggets.com slash 25admins and sign up for a seven-day free trial. The on-demand virtual labs mean you can build practical experience with the commands, config, scripts, and everything you need to get the most out of each course. Another standout feature is the accountability coaching service, available to all learners with a subscription, which gives you access to a real person who will help you craft a personalized learning plan and set goals, and will check in with you to keep you accountable. So start your free seven-day trial today at cbtnuggets.com slash 25admins. It includes unlimited access to all course materials, including virtual labs. That's cbtnuggets.com slash 25admins. Let's do some free consulting then. But first of all, thank you everyone who supports us with PayPal and Patreon. We really do appreciate that. You can go to 2.5admins.com slash support if you want to learn more about that. And remember, for $5 or more per month on Patreon, you can get an advert-free RSS feed. And if you want to get in contact to send any questions or your feedback, show at 2.5admins.com. Another perk of being a patron is you get to skip the queue for the free consulting, which is exactly what Kevin has done. He writes, I just listened to last week's episode, and speaking of learning new things, I'm currently running ZFS on my home lab with a Dell Perk RAID controller, passing the disks through each as their own single drive RAID. And now I know that's bad. So my question is, what would be the best way to fix that? I know I would need to buy a SAS controller. Can I just buy a $50 LSI SAS controller on Amazon and plug my backplane into that and then just import the pool? Or do I have to rebuild my pool from backup since the dataset got translated through the RAID controller? Are there different connectors for SAS so I need to worry about getting the right controller? I'm super new to this and would love to learn. A lot of these answers are going to depend on exactly which perk controller you've got. Uh, some of the perks can be flashed with different firmware that's called IT mode. Uh, IT mode removes the RAID capability entirely and just turns the perk into a simple host bus adapter, at which point it's perfectly fine. If you can do that and you're comfortable with flashing the firmware yourself, there's nothing wrong with it. That's perfectly fine. With that said... I personally do prefer a SAS controller that has no other lot in life than to be a SAS controller. So if you're comfortable spending that $50 on Amazon, I personally think that's a great option too. For your question about cables, uh, the individual cables aren't different from the different controllers. But again, we can't answer this for certain without knowing what LSI controller you're looking at and what PERT controller you're looking at. Because what you're going to be looking for is called a breakout cable and... There are two or three different varieties of breakout cable. And again, it's just going to be different on, you know, depending on which card you've got. What is that? It's like 83, 87. That's not the right number, but it kind of sounds like that. Do you know, Alan, off the top of your head? Not off the top of my head. And it can depend on the backplane. Like I've seen some backplanes that have the the regular like Ford address uh, SFF connector. And then the backplane breaks it out into the separate SATA. 
ports and then those go to the drive or have others seen, you know, the octopus type cables where each of the connectors goes directly to a SATA cable for each disk. And so it can really depend there. But to answer the other part of your question, usually you would be able to just connect the SAS cables to the card and it will just work. The RAID software on the PERC controller usually will just have stolen the last sector or two of the disk to keep its metadata on. And so ZFS will still be able to find the contents of the disk and it'll just show up on zpool import. I actually did this once. My very first ZFS machine that I built as a new machine had uh, an Adaptech RAID controller card because it said on the box that it worked with FreeBSD. But eventually I found that, a, you know, an LSI HPA was much better, especially since with that Adaptech, I had to do the, you know, create each drive as a separate RAID zero. And then when a drive failed, it meant rebooting into this weird web BIOS thingy that I had. It was terrible. I can't believe you didn't get the high point rocket raid, Alan. They advertised FreeBSD like all over the place. Like, yeah, we're the FreeBSD card. Get us for your FreeBSD raid. High point rocket raid. This is what Newegg had in stock when I was buying the machine. And so I pulled out the adapter card, put in the LSI card, connected the two connectors to it. And oh, look, all my drives just showed up and the pool imported and I didn't have to do anything. And it was great. So in general, the RAID controller won't have done anything terrible to the content of the disk and you will just be able to import it. And the most common kind of uh, interface is SFF8087, but there are a couple of others. The 887 has been in use for a very long time, and there are tons of cards out there that use it. But I know that like the um, I've got an LSI host bus adapter in uh, my machine that was really new, and I remember it had a strange – it needed a strange cable. I can't remember the number for that one. Right. Like, I think there's some of the newer cards, like the LSI 9300s and up. Yeah, that's the uh, one. I use the, the 12 gigabit rather than 6 gigabit SAS cables, which might have different connectors. So the speed of the card is likely the thing that will make the cables be different. Although one of my 9300s is a external one, which has a very different connector to the 6 gig external one, but external is completely different kettle of fish. SFF 8643 and 8482 are the other common designations. And, you know, again, it's it's just going to depend on your backplane and on your specific controller as to, you know, what cable you need, what it needs to be on either end. It's got to be what the controller wants on one end and what the backplane wants on the other. And we don't know what either of those things are. So you might be looking for a breakout or you might be, you know, looking for just a straight through SFF 8087. You know, if it's the same interface on both the backplane and the controller. I usually see controllers with individual SAS connectors for the drives. And those are Effectively identical to SATA cables, but uh, a- again, you know, you would then need the breakout because your host bus adapter is not likely to have individual connectors on it. It's almost certainly going to have a breakout if it's got four or more ports. Yeah, you know, uh, in my case, when swapping the Adaptech with the LSI, the cards were in the same place, so I just disconnected the cable from the Adaptech and plugged it into the LSI, and it was fine. On a different machine, I moved. To- from a card to an onboard in the motherboard. And so I had to replace the cables and it was a bit different. And I've bought different cables for it. Some backplanes use basically the same connector as the HBA. And uh, sometimes you don't have a backplane, you're connecting directly to the disks. And yeah, there's quite a few different possible combinations. But generally you'll be able to tell by looking up the part that you have and the one you're planning to buy. And if the connectors are the same, you hopefully should be able to just plug the existing cables in and it will just work. Right, well, we'd better get out of here then. Remember, show at 2.5admins.com if you want to send any questions or feedback. 
You can find me on Twitter at Joe Ressington. I'm at GRSSNet. And I'm at Alan Jude. We'll see you next week.